This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, opinion leaders, and authors. Season 10, Episode 10, Migrations, in conversation with author J.L. Torres. Our guest today is author J.L. Torres. His latest collection of short stories won the Tomas Rivera Prize. It chronicles the world of Puerto Rican immigrants in the United States, the tug to return to the island, assimilation, and all of the trials and tribulations, highs and lows of the immigrant experience. He demonstrates in Migrations that being an immigrant is a universal experience rather than one unique to a particular ethnic group. Joining us today from his office in Plattsburgh is J.L. Torres. Good afternoon, JL. How are you? I'm doing great, Jim. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I, I really appreciate it. This is a great opportunity, and I'm dying to talk to you. My pleasure. I think we're going to have a great show here. Mm-hmm. Why don't we start with Tell Us About Migrations and how the collection of short stories came together. Okay. I, it all started really with email that I received from a colleague of mine, Lisa Sanchez Gonzalez, who's a scholar and a professor of, of literature at uh, University of Connecticut. And she sent me this article about these students, these Puerto Rican students that, that were sent to the Carlisle Indian Industrial School mm-hmm. in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And I, I, had, I didn't know anything about this, this event, you know, in, in my studies, in my own readings. So I was very intrigued and I read the article and I was absolutely astounded that, they, that these students actually had been sent from Puerto Rico to this Indian school because the Americans had invaded the island, felt that these were Indians so they could send them to the school to train them. And now they, I don't know if people know about the Kala Indian School, but these were a bunch of boarding schools. There was a program in the late 19th century to sort of uh, assimilate Indian, young Indian students into the American way of life. And that's what they did with these Puerto Rican students. So I was, the historical part was interesting to me, but I felt that there was a story there. Uh-huh. And I, I'm a big I'm a big fan of trying to get history and make it in a way that's more palpable for people that can they can read it and they can get a better sense of it. And I think when you put it into fictional form, that happens. So that was my first story, and I just wanted it just to write that one story. But then I started thinking, maybe there's other events in Puerto Rican history that I can look at, and maybe have a collection that has that sort of historical theme throughout uh-huh. and that was sort of the origins of this collection so it, everything's very sort of historical historically bound by important events in in puerto rican history well you know it's interesting as we were chatting before we, we went on the air mm-hmm. i'm originally from new york from new york city from queens so i went to school with a lot of kids from puerto rico or puerto rican americans so the stories the 11 stories in this collection really resonated with me as a New Yorker. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. before we actually jump into the book, tell me about the Tomas Rivera Prize, because it's a a very prestigious prize. And Mm -hmm. your book, this collection of short stories, won the inaugural Tomas Rivera Prize. So tell us about that prize. Yeah, I'm honored, honestly, that, that, that I received it as the first, you know, the first winner. As I mentioned earlier to you, I first was not going to submit the manuscript to to this award because I had a run of, of rejections and even though I knew that this book had something because it had been shortlisted for one 
contest and long listed for two others. I just felt the, the fee was like $35. And I said, it's kind of steep, you know, the other prices are 15, you know, $10, uh-huh. $20, $35. And Deadline almost was coming, and I said, I don't know. And then I just thought, let me just do it. Another reason is that, you know, it's a Tomas Rivera prize. And Tomas Rivera, for, for folks that might not know, was a giant of Chicano literature icon, iconic almost. And he was a young boy. He was a migrant worker, and he wrote about those experiences in, in his own award-winning novel, which is called And the Earth Did Not Devour Him, a book that I I teach, I used to teach in my classes. I was really hesitant at first, but let me just send it in. Also, what made me decide that it was that Luis Alberto Urrea, who was the judge, is one of my favorite writers. And I felt that I had some affinities with, with him and my style and the way he approaches writing fiction. I said, well, maybe, you know, maybe he'll see something in this collection. And sure enough, he did. I, I was the winner and I was very happy to hear it. It was really very emotional for me, actually, when I got the word that I, I wanted. Uh, not only because the judge was Luis Alberto Rea, who was one of my favorite writers yes. and someone who I admire, then also because it's named after Tomás Rivera, who is this amazing individual who was also a chancellor yes. uh, of a college. He went from being a migrant, young worker, right, to becoming a, a professor of literature and then an author, award-winning, and then also a chancellor of UC Riverside, which is the, the college that also, along with the Los Angeles Review of Books, put up the prize. JL, congratulations. It's a great honor, a great recognition that that this particular book, The Migrations, actually won that inaugural Tomas Rivera Prize. So again, congratulations. And what better month for us to do this podcast than this month, which is National Hispanic Heritage Month. So you're yeah, doubly yeah. lucky. I, I am doubly lucky in the sense that uh, it's Hispanic heritage. Some people would not like the word Hispanic, let me just say. <laughs> you know, mo- mo- some of us favor Latinx rather than, than, than Hispanic or Latino. Or Latina is better than, than Hispanic. But nonetheless, that's what it's called. But it's ironic you mentioned that because today I just saw this, the, I think the Latino publishing website, which I'm a member, by the way, sent out their newsletter and then they put that they they were asked by Goodreads to curate, curate a list of, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe my book is in there. And it was not in there. So I was like, wow, that is, that is like, is that a snub? I mean, you would think that it may be an award-winning book would maybe make a list of yes. books that you should write. <laughs> it's a whole mystery how, the, how that works. It's important to have a list, certainly, so people can say, these are books that you should look into. I'm just a little disappointed my book wasn't in there. But. Well, listen, after this podcast, I'm going to send them a strong letter. <laughs> I would appreciate it if you did that. I, I will. I mean, all your all your listeners go out in there. No, I don't. I, I just it's just ironic. Don't you think that I, you you win a prize of this nature and it's not on a list of books that maybe for Hispanic heritage? It's I think one. that I think it says more about Goodreads than it says about the quality yeah, of migrations. I but I will I definitely know. follow up. And yeah. before we launch into the book, let me just mention for my listeners. To follow along with my conversation with JL today, make sure to visit my website and open up the TSFE blog dated September 19th to get a full visual of JL, the cover of Migrations, a little blurb on the Tomas Rivera Prize, as well as the Saranac Review, which we'll talk about a little bit later because JL was one of the founders of the Saranac Literary Review at SUNY Plattsburgh. But JL, 
let's just let's come back to the stories. There there are sure. eleven wonderful short stories here. Again, before we came on the air, we were talking about some common themes, some very strong women in these short stories. I'm thinking of Mint Condition with Nikki. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of Elena in the operation. I'm thinking of the the two sisters in Hawaii, the Kokis story. I'm also mm-hmm. thinking of Rip and Rick with uh, Koki and uh, TJ and Xavier. These were all, as well as, of course, Granny's Gone Wild and Ramona. Who could, who could forget Ramona? <laughs> very strong, very strong women. Talk to me a little bit about the, the crafting of those characters and your ability to draw these these very strong, larger-than-life women. Yeah, th- thank you for that. I mean, I, I have been mentioned by colleagues, female colleague writers, who, that praise for my ability to write women sensitively and, and kind of a, a way that promotes their their agency. And I, I've always thought about that. But, you know, partly is because I, I've grown up with strong women in my life, whether it's my mother, who was a, a single mom for, for the longest time. It was absolutely, it was not going to take any anything from anybody and, and taught us to be strong that way. And along with my grandmother, who, who was like 97, she was, a, you know, my mother, my, my paternal grandmother, who lived to be like 90 something. And she was absolutely the matriarch of the family because her husband died way before her. And she was basically the person that held that that family together. My wife, you know, who is a very strong woman, I, I'm attracted to strong women. And, and also, I think it's a real challenge writing them. And let's face it, I mean, we, most mainstream literature has for centuries been focused on men, right, and what they do. Mm-hmm. I wanted to maybe, you know, kind of for, give, for, you know, forefront women, and particularly in Puerto Rican history, because they've been, they've had impact on our history. A lot of strong women who have been leaders in our culture, in our society. So that was, those are the reasons why I, I think I, and plus, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes you go with the story. A story like the operation obviously is centered on Elena, and she's a woman. You got to, you just have to write her into the story. She is the story. Um, Let's yeah. talk about the operation. Let's talk because okay. that that's a it's a very moving story. She's a very strong character. Let tell tell our listeners about the operation. Well again, you know, after that the initial story that I wrote, you know, go make some fire about the, the students in the Carlisle school, I kept doing research on different things that I felt were very important in American in Puerto Rican history. And one of this was the sterilization program that went on for years, uh, decades in Puerto Rico from maybe 19, I would say 1930s, really, until maybe the 19, even 60s. Mm. I think I read somewhere that the amount of women that were sterilized by this program was one of the, if not the most in the world. It really was based on eugenics. That's what was behind it. And also this idea that there was just, instead of dealing with the problems in Puerto Rico, poverty, whatever, let's just deal with it by just cutting down the population, right? It, it was really very nefarious, to say the least. And I read a lot on this. And then I said, I, this is one of the stories that I wanted to do for this collection. So I sent it on her and uh, she, her husband dies. And she's lucky enough that they were willing to give her the job because they really liked her husband. And they knew that now she was a widow. One of the things, and this is true, a lot of these factories sometimes would tell a woman, if you want to work here, you need to get this operation. Mm-hmm. And you get to get the certif- certificate to say, because we don't want you, you know, to be taking time off or whatever part of the plot she has to get this operation but then the thing is that these women were a lot of times misinformed and they felt that at that time it was too tying 
they would tie the tubes. Yes. And now today we we can remove, you know, reverse we can do it, that. Yes. Yeah, reverse it. But back then, no. So a lot of these women thought that they could just change it if they later on wanted to have a child. And that's she went into that operation thinking that was the case because she also wanted the job. She needed the job. You know, she had two kids. So that story really is is focuses on that. I think that story, and doing the research, I also it was very painful for me because I became I got this nagging feeling that my mother was one of those women that they probably operated and gave false information to because she had an operation after I was born. At one time, you know, I, I remember maybe for us mentioning to her, you know, why didn't you have more care? I would have left to have another sister after me. You know, I'm, I'm the youngest. And she kind of said, well, I had an operation, you know, and, and, and an army doctor, by the way, told me that maybe I should and all this and all the other stuff. And I never really pressed it because I was young and I, I never thought. And my mom died about five years ago. And I, I never, I wish I had maybe asked her if I had known what I know now, just to just to just figure out what happened. So I'm still, it could have been maybe for for other reasons, but maybe maybe it was that she was sort of like, you know, kind of coerced a little bit into it. Mm. It's very difficult to know, but it was very hard for me to read these accounts of these women, and and something that's done like that to your people, and you don't don't learn about it until recently. If I hadn't done this, I had heard a bit, like sort of but not really looked into it. And then when you really start looking into the history of it and the research behind it, and, and he went even after the Luis Munoz Marin, who was a Puerto Rican governor, the first one, even after he came in, they continued this program. So it wasn't just an American thing. It was also the colonial government deciding to go and continue the program. I never knew that. Let's come on to the story about Rip and Rick, because mm-hmm. here you have the classic young Puerto Rican-American couple Mm-hmm. They have have a young son. He turns out to be highly gifted. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that story because it takes place in the Bronx and they're in the 1990s. This yes. is another thing too. Yeah, yeah. So this is another historical moment. And by the way, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but you know, a lot of uh, Puerto Ricans really had a, a big hand in the in the rise of of hip hop. In fact, in Sedgwick Avenue, the building where they used to have these first uh, like little parties and stuff where these, these young people would start doing the turntable thing and the DJing and stuff that they have a plaque and saying, this is where hip hop was born. Really? That's kind of, yeah. I didn't didn't know that. Sedgwick, I mean, in the Bronx. And, and so I, I I felt that was an interesting part of our history, you know, New York city history. And also, I also, in my writing, like to revisit tropes that I see in Latinx literature a lot. And one of them is this thing of the gangs, right. And, and the idea of young people being in gangs, and you see this in movies and, and all kinds of other cultural production. And I kind of wanted to take it and maybe change it a little bit because I felt that a lot of times it was almost this bleak picture. And this, even to say this is a sad story, I'm not going to say it isn't, but also the other side as to the perspective of those kids in those gangs, rather than just depicting them as like wild animals and that kind of thing. I wanted to give them a little bit more of a, of, of a, a voice to justice to their stories. So this is a couple that gets out of that life, mm-hmm. right? And in the process of remembering that, they, you know, the story goes into how they got in and how they got out and all this, and then they were committed to becoming, you know, becoming better. And they were. And now they have this son that's actually gifted, and he's sort of starting on the same road. Right. Mm-hmm. And how they deal with it is really the issue. And also how they don't deal with it is also part of the issue. So I want all those elements were in the story. And also I wanted to have this young, young man, 16 year old Xavier, kind of Xavi, be 
starting to really get into hip hop because now in the 90s you begin to see the beginning the sort of when it's just going to about to shoot you have all these you have little nas and you and you have untang clang all these but i know this only because my son helped me <laughs> with a lot of the all that and I, I dedicate the story to him if anybody reads the stories who's julian julian is my youngest son who is very much loves hip-hop and wants to do hip-hop he's put a couple of put a little album out there uh-huh. in spotify so he is a historian of this and so i picked his brain a lot uh, and he gave me a whole lesson in, in 90s hip-hop, and I utilized that and incorporated it to create this young, firing hip-hop young guy who happens to be just super smart. He's yes. really probably probably genius level, right? Mm-hmm. It's also kind of a sort of a look into how, how schools fail gifted children in many ways. Well, and of course, it, there's a tragic end to it. One of the other themes there is that there's a sense of, well, he's not succeeding here in the Bronx. Let's take him back to Puerto Rico. It oh, might yeah. be it might be a more calming environment with traditional yeah. values, because that's a, that's a common theme, of course, that occurs in not only Puerto Rican culture but in a lot of immigrant yeah. cultures. Let's take this this product oh, of the yeah. American culture back to the old country, yeah. and, and that, that's a great idea, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. Tell us. So yeah. that's a, t- let's talk about that. Oh, I that, I had to put that in because I growing up that was always the 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 thing. Our parents, you know, you left the island obviously because it was full of problems, and then you're here, probably doing a little better than you probably would have done over there. Sure. And there's always this, this nostalgia, right? Like, oh, the, the island is so wonderful, and it's just like this this pristine paradise, you know, and it's not. Because I lived there, I know it's not. It's not. <laughs> uh, so that I want to sort of the, to, to kind of play around with that idea and challenge it because it's not the best. And really, the worst thing they could have done was send that kid away. The readers, you know, your viewers, your listeners, you read the book and read the short story, and you'll see what I mean. But that is, uh, and it's easier for us to do it. And this is something also when you, you mention immigrant, right, immigrants, because we are we are immigrants in many ways. But 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 in a way we're not, because this is the difference between. You know, Puerto Ricans and a lot of immigrants that came to this country. One, we're American citizens. Yes, of course. We can board the plane without a passport, be in three and a half or three hours or so, be in New York City, and now you become a full-fledged citizen. Now you can vote for president. Yes. You can actually, you know, when you're Puerto Rico, you can't. You have, uh, you know, all kinds of other things that you can, and you can get more more services, better services here than you can in the island. You have representation. You actually have people in Congress that will fight for you. You have you don't have that in, in, in Puerto Rico. So it's very different. It's also easy. This this we have in Puerto Rico this term called the uh, which is basically go come and go. Uh-huh. So we have a come and go kind of thing in our in our lives where we're constantly boarding that plane, going back and forth, back and forth, without any kind of hassles that other people have. Mm-hmm. And it makes it easier for somebody like the two characters, Koki and, and TJ, to say, let's send them to Puerto Rico with your grandmother, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's just put them on a plane and we don't have to go to any hassles. Uh, if you're Dominican, it's a little harder, right? Yes. Or if you're Mexican, you, you don't send your kid back to Mexico unless it's for a vacation. I, I think that's the big difference, too, with us because it kind of reinforces this idea that we're not here nor there in many ways. Kind of betwixt and between. Let's come back yeah. to another story, Granny's Gone Wild, Ramona. Again, another mm-hmm. very strong woman. And mm-hmm. she locks horns with her daughter, 
who is yes. now married, living in the suburbs, has a baby. There's, there's of course, the mother-daughter tension, which is, which right. is a universal theme. It's, no, it's mm-hmm. nothing peculiar to Puerto Rican culture. But there's mm-hmm. the mother-daughter tension. And then there's also the tension of assimilation and non-assimilation. Yes. That, that's the key. The daughter wanted to be called Brittany, and the mother right. wanted her to be called Ramona. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about that, because that's, I, I thought that was, that was, that was funny. It was cute. I think it was yeah. a, it's a, it's a vignette that I think any immigrant family would relate to. Yeah, absolutely. There's always tension, right? Be the older generation, the younger generation growing up. And, and, and also, especially if you want them to, to continue, right, with, with the cultural, the roots, right? And that's what Ramona wants in her daughter. And she names her Ramona. And then she actually goes legally and changes it. And it's not one thing that's not what we call it. She <laughs> legally changes her name. And then at one point she says, Ramona says, you know, you, I thought that you would probably, because my mother was Ramona, you're the third Ramona. And the fact it's it's, you know, two strong women and you think that my daughter would you know could continue to be part of the name and she's not she hates the name because uh, you know it was i think she said she was it was a sticky name you know that kind of thing you know right i mean like the whole world and then she really is assimilated uh, ramona even though she herself is assimilated there's levels of assimilation right because that is a typical sort of first maybe second generation maybe yeah first generation i, I see ramona as a first generation she grew up in new york she definitely is assimilating. If she went back to Puerto Rico, they would think you're not you're a New Rican. You're not even Puerto Rican. New but she still feels yeah. She still wants to be considered Puerto Rican. Her daughter is now way out there. She's married a white guy, you know. She lives who she, I think she said the, perhaps the whitest guy on earth. I think she mentions <laughs> it. I mean, so she's not very happy. And the daughter, I think you sense us anyway from the perspective of Ramona that she's so embarrassed by her mother. Yes. And that's also what bothers her. And again, that's, you know, a, that, that's, a, that's a common theme in yeah. all immigrant cultures, that the, the more Americanized the kids or the grandkids become, they become a little bit embarrassed of the old country ways of mm-hmm. mom or grandma or grandpa, right. et cetera. So, Right. And they're not interested in following the traditions and stuff. They're just, they're Americans all the way. Exactly. And they're, yeah. and they're very proud of it. And they're, right. they're, you know, they stamp their foot and bang, bang the table and say, don't want to have any part of the old country. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, the, the, that story is interlocked. Some of these stories, I also try to connect them in one way or the other throughout. I think the astute reader will see little, little connections. You don't know, perhaps you, you definitely picked up. James, that the daughter in that story, Brittany's daughter, is the is the character, main character in one of those stories that follows, right? The, the runaway, uh, runaway, right, right, Loopy. And there's connections like that. I mean, you'll have connections like that 52 catalog, uh, convertible catalog that's undercover, a beautiful cover, by the way. They did a fantastic job on that. And that car later on, the brother. Ramona's brother is actually building models and he builds a 52 convertible, right? And one of the players when in the Clemente story, they're playing a game called Brica, which is a Puerto Rican game that the sisters also play. I mean, so there's little connections to say all these people in one mm-hmm. way have a, a sort of running cultural connection being Puerto Rican, you know? That sometimes uh, the connection is a, is a slim thread, but they're still there where there's playing a game that everybody Puerto Rico plays or whether I think like a 52 convertible, which is, which is symbolic of the Estado Libre Asociado, which began in 1952. And that's, the, that's what 
that is. Let's come back to, you mentioned Clementi. One of the short stories is Clementi burning baseball. And of course, that refers to the, the famous Puerto Rican-born baseball player, Roberto Clementi. And we were talking off air about the subtle differences between Caribbean racism, American racism. Talk to me a little bit about that, because that comes across in the story and the shock that Roberto Clementi has when he's playing baseball here and on the mainland. He he can't stay in the same hotel as the white players. He's got to go to a hotel in the black part of town or stay with a black family or eat in a black restaurant. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, racism is something, you know, it's, it's a worldwide problem, we, we, we know, and, and for our country, it, it's very much so. But when I say that it's very different is that Caribbean racism is slightly different because the Caribbean and some other Latin American countries, we really are truly a mix, a more apparent mix and a higher mix than, than perhaps in the, in the U.S. And because of that, then the racism is not just about being darker, right? Mm-hmm. It's also how dark you are. Or whether, you know, what we call your, your phenotypes, right? Your, your facial features, you know, your lips, your, your hair. And the one drop theory in America is if you have one drop, even if you're the lightest black person ever, you're still black. For us, some of us have more than one drop. So it's not, it's not a matter of just, you know, that. So then what, make, what distinguishes us, what's racist about it is that always the person who's lighter or looks white raises to the top of this caste system that we have. Mm. And that comes from the Spanish. As I mentioned earlier off air, that the Spanish had this very intricate system to delegate different positions, social positions, based on um, how closer you were to the white. And unfortunately, that still lingers in in Brazil. It lingers lingers in a lot of other Latin American countries and certainly in the Caribbean. I mean, in Jamaica, as I mentioned, remember, I mentioned that if you, in your car, I, I don't think they have this anymore, but they used to have, if you were like one eighth black, they would put Octoroon on your ID card. Like, you have to ask the question, why do you need to do that? This yes. is this sort of obsession with that because we're all mixed. So then the social caste system is based not so much on being white or black, but how close you're, you are to the white because there's a lot of in between. And when Roberto Clemente goes, this is the culture he went from to now a very black white paradigm. And he's trying to play baseball and the black players tell him, damn, you know, what, what's your problem? You know, you act like you're white, you know, but you're black. And at one point he tells him, I'm not black like you. He doesn't mean that he's not black. Roberto Clemente, I'm sure you knew he was a black person, yes. <laughs> but he did not, you know, culturally, he's not the same thing as an African-American. And that's actually true. But what he doesn't understand is that you could be Afro-Cuban, you could be Afro-Puerto Rican, you could be Afro-Jamaican, you know, you could be whatever. You know, there's different kinds of, well, Afro-Jamaican, Jamaican is most pretty much African. But you know what I'm saying? In Latin America, you could be of, of, of this race and still be a different culture. So just because you're not African-American doesn't mean you're not black. And, you know, a lot of Puerto Ricans do that. They say, I'm not, you know, I've met Puerto Ricans that are really, really very dark. And they say, I'm not, I'm not black. I'm Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're right. You're, well, you're right about being Puerto Rican, but you are black. I mean, <laughs> there's not, being Puerto Rican doesn't whitewash you. But you see how that plays into people's thinking because I'm Puerto Rican, I'm not black. And I think maybe the reference point is always Afro-Americans, African-Americans. Mm-hmm. But that's what, that's what that story is about, him coming to grips, you know, with, with kind of grasping what he is really. And as I mentioned earlier, that's, the introduction really to my novella, which is going to continue this issue, this journey that Roberto Clemente is going to kind of self-realization when it comes to his the race issue. 
So you're you've taken your you've taken the short story Clemente Burning Baseball and you're turning that into a novella. Could you tell our listeners a little about that so that they're on the lookout for it? Well, hopefully, you know, his the death of the horrible tragedy when he died. It's going to be it's 50 years next year. So I'm really trying to finish this book before that so that that it can be in the in the you know in the, in the imagination of a lot of people. What I'm going to do is just take that beginning and continue him on all these sort of flashbacks going back into time when he's revisiting and kind of reconsidering things that happened to him from that different now much aware uh, mindset where now he's understanding race a little more throughout in that in that particular short story he meets alfonso schomburg that a lot of people don't know was mm-hmm. actually puerto rican afro puerto rican puerto i've mentioned i've talked to puerto ricans and they don't know who alfonso schomburg is i'm like shame on you i mean alfonso schomburg is is you know we have a schomburg library named mm-hmm. after him he was uh, someone that was an africanist and accumulated a lot of archival material that's in that library now he was one of the generators you know of uh harlem renaissance a lot of people were visiting him and getting materials from him became friends with him and he was very knowledgeable about africania and all different kind of things that having to do with with, with slavery and the black culture in the caribbean and in america he talks to him he keeps meeting these dead people who are now afro puerto ricans throughout this novella and they're going to lead him towards maybe a better understanding of himself that's really what the i mean it's in the it's in the beginning stages but and you know anytime you take a journey with a book you don't know where it's going to go but but that's my mind of what i want to do with this book that's that's very exciting i can't wait to can't wait to read that and have you back here on the show and jl in the remaining few minutes of the podcast are there any closing thoughts you have for our listeners we haven't we've covered about half of the stories half of the Mm -hmm. 11 stories in migrations any closing thoughts you have for our listeners well i i would hope i think that americans a lot of americans don't really know much about Puerto Rican history or culture, or even about Puerto Ricans, I really would invite them to to read this because you're going to get a, at least a, a good sense, an overview. It's a very, very short overview, obviously, of, of events in Puerto Rican history that kind of have defined us and certain have a, an impact on us. And I really think that they would enjoy the stories. I work very hard in my craft. I try to, even with stories that make you think, also are making you go through a journey that's enjoyable uh, as a reading experience. So I would hope that they get the book. And and also, if they do, please contact me and any of my social media and, and tell me if you enjoyed the book. And if any of you did enjoy the book, please let me know because as a, as a writer, I'm always open to suggestions and any kind of criticism. So I would hope that they, they do that. And JL, where can my listeners get a copy of the book? Well, you know, this book is, is anywhere that you any book, online book, bookstore. I mean, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, any of the other books that you normally get books. And if you want, you can also go to the Sandler's Review of Books website, L-A-R-B website, and they also sell it there. So it's not very, I have had no problems with anybody getting this book. You know, if you want to go to an independent bookstore, you can have them also order it. Well, very good. Well, listeners, you heard it directly from the author, J.L. Torres, where to get your copy of Migrations. I thoroughly enjoyed it. There are 11 wonderful short stories here. And of course, one of the short stories about Roberto Clemente is going to is being developed into a novella. So stay tuned. And once again, JL, thank you very much for joining us today, sharing with us your craft, your writing skill, what what the future holds for 
some more work down the road. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me on the show. It's really been a pleasure, Jim, uh, talking to you uh, off air and, and on air. Well, JL, it's always a pleasure to talk to a fellow New Yorker. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we, you never stop being a New Yorker. This is true. <laughs> true. This is true. <laughs> Once again, JL, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit my website to subscribe to the podcast www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com. It's free to do so, and by subscribing, all future episodes will come directly to your inbox. You can also listen to the previous 190 shows, read my book, peruse my blog, send me an email, or simply leave a comment. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.